his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Amen. Well, uh, last week the, the opening illustration of uh, Chick-fil-A uh, ruffled a few feathers, if you pardon the pun. Uh, I can guarantee that there will be discussion after the sermon today because uh, we come to uh, a, ser- a section of Jesus' sayings which cuts across some of the most uh, cherished sentiments that uh, we have. He says, I have come to turn a man uh, against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, there are few statements of Jesus that are more likely to uh, receive a negative pushback than this statement about division in families. Despite the fact that families today tend to to break up uh, more rapidly than ever before, the family is still regarded as something which is above criticism in our day. So the actor Michael J. Fox, when he says family is not an important thing, it's everything, well, he is... He's articulating what a lot of people feel, that the family is the great uh, aim, the the great end for which we live. Ordinarily peaceful and law-abiding men are willing to become violent and manipulative when it comes to what they see as defending the rights of their family. Mothers put the interests of their children above their own interests. And to fail to appreciate uh, the importance of family is to be seen as ungrateful, as unthankful. Uh, Ronaldinho, the next slide please, the Brazilian uh, footballer, uh, when he says, my family is everything, I am what I am, thanks to my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, because they have given me everything. The education I have is thanks to them. Uh, that's, that's, a really, that's, a, that's a good statement. And I think whenever uh, anyone says anything which uh, in any sense is seen to relativize the family, take it off that pedestal, that registers as ingratitude. How can you relativize the family that gave you everything. Now Christians too can put the family up on a pedestal. Uh, As Christians we we rightly believe that the family is the building block of society. Uh, It's ordained by God. Uh, But 
sometimes in our efforts to assert the importance of family, uh, to defend it against uh, its attacks by same-sex legislation or, or divorce easier, lax divorce laws, we can fall into the trap of presenting always an idealised family, you know, with a married couple who are madly in love with each other and uh, two, always two, uh, perfect children. And of course, that, uh, that can be very insensitive. Uh, we marginalise by that ideal the many for whom that is simply not a reality. So in short, both outside the church in the secular world and in the church, the family is untouchable. It is sacrosanct. And therefore, if we don't feel the tremor, the shockwaves of Jesus' words, we haven't really heard Jesus at all. We should be shocked. And certainly the the first hearers uh, would be shocked by what Jesus said because you have to remember that in the Middle Eastern culture in which Jesus is teaching, people were much less individualistic than we are today. So the family unit, doing things as a group, was much more the norm. And so Jesus' words would come as a bombshell to men. So we have this great challenge. But we're also going to see that uh, Jesus brings us great comfort. And we're going to uh, close with that. Uh, If there's a challenge from uh, our family, uh, if there's a, a cost to be contemplated... Uh, in rejection by our family, there's a blessing to be anticipated by the being brought into a new family, the family of God. Quick word about context for these verses. Chapter 11 uh, is the second of five great teaching sections in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it's marked in verse 1 by the call of the disciples. And then in verse 1 of chapter 11, uh, we read, After Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples. Now, it's likely, I think, that uh, this chapter uh, has statements brought together from uh, time, different times when Jesus was teaching on the subject of mission. Uh, Jesus probably used uh, some of the sayings in this chapter on many occasions. And they're gathered together here in the context of the sending out of the twelve uh, and the instruction regarding the bringing of the good news to others. So it has a first context uh, in a certain time of salvation history and we saw at the beginning that some of the instructions are particular uh, to the place on the timeline that the disciples are. But Uh, It becomes plain as Jesus goes on that he intends these teachings to be uh, universal. These are instructions not just for the mission of the Twelve, but for the 40 years after that and from then to our own day. We too will receive opposition. We too must count the cost of rejection by our families. We're going to uh, have three headings. First of all, we're going to consider... uh, clash of worldviews. We're going to get get under the surface of what's going on here to consider clash of worldviews. And then uh, a call to put Jesus first before everything else. And then thirdly, uh, a new family to be entered. So first of all then, a clash of worldviews. 
it's really important as Christians that we, uh, first of all, have a Christian worldview, that we think biblically about the world around us, but also that we recognize that other people have a worldview which will be quite different from the Bible's worldview. We need to identify competing worldviews. It's a huge mistake to think that everybody sees the world and events in the world and institutions in the world the same way. They don't. Our view is always coloured by our values. The Christian has values which are derived from the Bible, which shape the way he or she looks at the world. But the secular person has a different set of values. Let me take, as an example, uh, one particular view which is rammed down our throats every day from the radio, television and the media. The, the worldview of LGBTQ. There's a particular worldview behind uh, the values that are held forth by that community. First of all, it presupposes that human identity is bound up with gender and sexuality. Secondly, it presupposes that human fulfillment and freedom is found largely by expressing your sexual preferences. A person's sexuality is a given and therefore it is a good to be affirmed. Now that is a particular worldview from that community. But it comes head to head with the Bible's worldview. What, what as Christians does, do we believe uh, about these things? Well, uh, the Bible teaches that uh, we do not find our identity in our gender or our sexuality. We find our identity in Christ. That's fundamental. Furthermore, because we're fallen creatures, there are inclinations that we have which are not good and are not to be expressed. Third, freedom is found through the reconciliation that we have in the cross of Jesus. Reconciliation with God and that liberates us to serve him. We find freedom through Christ. So, just from that one example, you can see how conflicting are these worldviews, the presuppositions, the things that are unsaid, that underlie what uh, is claimed, are quite different. And therefore, you cannot simply go along with a train of thought uh, and, and uh, accept their presuppositions. They have to be challenged. What worldview do we have? It's the same when uh, you think of the encouragements that Jesus gives each one of us to be courageous as Christians. Uh, the chapter uh, has a list of encouragements that the Lord gives us to be bold in standing up for Jesus. But they only make sense if you have a biblical worldview. They rest upon uh, the view that is presupposed by Jesus. There is a God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. There is a heaven to seek and a hell to shun. The greatest issue facing all of us is how to be forgiven and to be reconciled to a holy God. There is a day of judgment when everything will be brought out into the open and the truth will be victorious. That's the biblical worldview. That's the worldview that we should hold to as Christians. 
But it's not the view of the people around us who are not Christians. The secular worldview is that, well, if they believe in any kind of God, it's uh, not the God of the Bible, but it's a tame, domesticated version. A God who's there when I need him. Uh, He is uh, the one who uh, has been just reduced uh, to being safe. Short-term gain is all important because short-term gain is all that there is. There is no heaven, no hell, no judgment. And all that matters in life, therefore, is getting ahead, avoiding discomfort, and being happy now. So, the Christian and the non-Christian are living according to two completely different worldviews, based on two different, completely different understandings of the world. And those different worldviews explain another presupposition of the Bible... And that is that the world and the kingdom of God are in conflict. The world is in conflict with God's rule. Now, let's let's be clear, let's nuance this properly. The world is God's creation and therefore it reflects the goodness, the glory and the grace of God. Think about the the actual uh, natural creation. Uh, In so many ways, it is stunningly beautiful. The world of nature, fascinating. Uh, The the earth itself, abundantly fruitful. It provides our food. Uh, Think of all the doomsday scenarios that have said that the population of the world is increasing so rapidly that we wouldn't be able to feed the population. Well, here we are. A country like India, once renowned for famine, is a net exporter of food. God's creation is stunning. Stunningly productive and beautiful. And also individual uh, human beings are reflectors of God's grace and power and beauty. And so even people who don't acknowledge God as, 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 as being there are still uh, people whose lives are affected by common grace. Uh, they're restrained uh, from going to excess and sin. And they're given gifts of art and music and literature which uh, beautify the world in which we live. And yet, and yet, the world and all of us in it have fallen. We are inheritors of our first father's sin. Uh, The best institutions, the best of governments, the most humanitarian of movements and our families are still in rejection of God's rule. They are shaped by self-interest and they will always want to push God to the margins. Or if they acknowledge God, they'll acknowledge, as we said, a domesticated God who can be trotted out at Christmas time or nodded to at school assemblies. And for the early Christians, uh, the test would arise in terms of their loyalty to Caesar. Caesar demanded unqualified worship and allegiance. And the appropriate response for those early Christians was, Jesus is Lord. That was a dangerous statement. Because everybody was called in to say that Caesar is Lord. And it was a mark of revolution. It was a, a defiant statement of faith to declare not Caesar, but Jesus 
as Lord. And even today, when Caesar represents good government or a political party with a worthy ideal, we can't give them our ultimate allegiance because there will always be an element of self-interest that leaves no room for God. And that's true even in the best of families. The family is a blessed institution, but it's still part of this world. And when John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world, he's speaking about the, the world outside the kingdom of God, the world that's organized against Christ with its alternative values and its alternative rewards and goals. And no matter how warm and loving a family we may have enjoyed, unless it's meaningfully Christian in its values, then things that it prizes and commends to us as important will be things which are actually, in their way, alternatives to the worship of God. And so, and in that sense, makers of rebellion against God. It will commend material prosperity, the pursuit of status and position, how our families love us to get on. Dignity, family unity. And all of these things may be good in themselves, but when they are commended to us as ultimate goods, as absolutes, they become alternatives to the worship of God. So there's this conflicting worldview, a clash of values going on all the time and including within the family. And secondly, Jesus says, you must put Jesus above every other loyalty. Verses 32 and 33 uh, remind us that being a Christian uh, is always to be an open Christian. It's always to be public. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. These are solemn words, aren't they? Uh, being disowned by our Father because we've disowned him and earth before others. Now, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean that we are condemned by failure. Think of the times, I'm sure we all kind of, times when in different ways we've betrayed our trust in Jesus and effectively have not owned Jesus as Lord in the public sphere. And it's a great comfort to think of, of the one who did that spectacularly. Think about Simon Peter, who disowned Jesus, who said he never knew Jesus on the night of Jesus' trial. Buckling under, even under the pressure of a servant maid. And yet, Jesus met with Simon Peter and forgave him and reinstated him and gave him work to do. And Peter goes on to acknowledge his master before men. Uh, how good it is to know that there is forgiveness always for our failures. Uh, there is the possibility to be put on the road again of owning the Lord. And when we do, Jesus promises that he will publicly one day, and he's speaking of the day of judgment, he will own us as his own. 
Now, living out of the closet, as we must do as Christians, inevitably means pushback. Verse 34, uh, Jesus is warning us against thinking that uh, becoming a Christian uh, will mean a life of tranquility. Look, whatever, it mean, whatever being a Christian means, it does not mean a life of tranquility. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. And again, wow, that's a shocking statement, isn't it? Don't think that I've come, don't think I've come to bring peace on earth. But Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. That is how your coming was heralded. What is going on here? Well, Jesus has come to bring us primarily peace with God. And again, this is where we have to remind ourselves that naturally speaking, we're at war with God. In a nice way. In a way that simply withholds from God the things that are best in our lives. But before we became Christians, that was the reality. And Jesus brings us peace with God, reconciles us to God, brings us home to God. Jesus brings peace between individuals, peace between the races. The, the wonder of the church is that uh, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We're, I mean, we're a, a, a pretty eclectic bunch of people this morning. Just look around how, how different we all are. And my goodness, uh, this is just a, a snapshot of the church in Scotland. Think of the, the church globally and the magnis- magnificent kaleidoscope that the church is. And Jesus brings peace amongst people who would be at each other's throats continually. He is the Prince of Peace. But he warns us with realism that there will be uh, those who resent us following him. And there will be sometimes uh, hatred and rejection. Bakater Jolly Singh is now a Christian minister in the Punjab area of India. And he was brought up uh, in a high-caste Sikh family. He became a Christian when uh, he was at school. His, his, his family showed all the signs of being a, a very open-minded family. They sent him to a Christian school, although they were uh, pretty committed Sikhs. Well, at this uh, school, a pupil witnessed to him and sowed the seed of the gospel in his heart, and that seed later germinated at college. Uh, At first, his father wasn't too concerned about his new beliefs, but when he refused to go to the temple in which his father had invested quite seriously, uh, his father became uh, outraged at this, what he saw was betrayal. He was forbidden to leave the house on Sundays to worship. His family told him that he had become low-caste and untouchable. He'd become a pig, which was the name for Christians. Eventually, he was told he must enroll in a Sikh temple, and when he ref- in, a, in, a, in a, a Sikh college. And when he refused, he was shown the door. He was kicked out of the family. And Bakater is now the, the minister of a church that has planted 20 other churches in the Punjab. But he says, my father said he felt like the world had come to an end for him and he disowned me. Sixteen years later, my parents said, we had three sons, one of them is dead. Now in relation to our family, uh, we to have great wisdom. Remember Jesus' words, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. A Christian must do all that he can for the good of his family. 
All of us are under the commandments and the fifth commandment is to honour your father and your mother. And therefore as Christians we obey the fifth commandment by uh, giving honour to our elders, to our father and our mother, our grandparents and loving our children. But ultimately we must love Jesus more than any earthly tie, any earthly commitment. Jesus is warning us, you cannot simply add me to your list of commitments. You cannot make me simply another uh, leisure time activity. It's not like that. Jesus is either Lord of all or Jesus is not Lord at all. His love seeks nothing less from us than an answering call of passionate commitment. One of the the commentators, William Hendrickson, uh, puts Jesus' warning about losing your life uh, very plainly. Jesus warns us if you uh, want to uh, win or, or keep your life, you'll end up losing it. Hendrickson says, Jesus means here that the person who, when the issue is between Jesus and what that person considers his own interests, chooses his own interests, That person, thinking that he's going to find himself a firmer hold in life, pardon me, will be bitterly disappointed. He will lose rather than gain. His happiness and usefulness will shrink and shrivel rather than increase. And at last he will perish everlastingly. Now that's a very grim but realistic warning when we are weighing things in the balance, when we are uh, at the crossroads, when we are considering our commitment to Christ. If we want to hang on to our life, we will eventually lose our life. The things that we prize will shrivel uh, in our hands. Making peace with the world at the expense of our conscience will cost us. We can't have peace with the world at the expense of loyalty to him. But on the other hand, losing your life leads to finding it. Losing your life, uh, what's that about? It's, well, Jesus uses the picture of of, uh, taking up your cross uh, in Jerusalem or any of the the areas that were under Roman rule. When you saw a man bearing his cross piece, he was a man who had no uh, prospects materially. He was lost to this world and for the Christian it means dying a death to our own priorities to our own self-interest and having our priorities and our passions and our goals shaped by our love for Jesus now that will mean that we're regarded as losers by many in the world It may mean our family are bemused by us, don't know what to make of us, or even reject us, say nasty things about us. But we will find life. We will find life. We will find a new satisfaction, a new experience of being loved and accepted, and a new usefulness that we had never dreamed of. In losing life, We find life. What a great paradox. And thirdly, much of that gaining life is because of this glorious truth that we were affirming uh, earlier. 
we enter a new family. This is wonderful. Jesus is warning us about the, the, the very real possibility of our families turning against us. But at the same, by the same token, we enter a family which is profoundly for us. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. This is a consequence of being adopted into the family of which Jesus, in which Jesus is our, our elder brother. We are, we're so closely identified with Jesus that we can be said to represent him. Once when Jesus was uh, teaching uh, in, a, in a house, it was so packed out that people couldn't get into it. And Mary and Jesus' half-brothers came uh, and the message was sent to Jesus that they wanted to, to speak with him. And they said, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. New family. And later on in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is going to, uh, Jesus is going to uh, speak of the fact that these family members are so united to him, so identified with him, that when a Christian visits a brother or a sister who's in prison, effectively they're visiting Jesus. And when a Christian gives food to another Christian who's hungry, they're effectively giving food to Jesus. And when a Christian gives clothes to a brother or a sister who's naked, they're effectively clothing Jesus. In this new family, we are united by faith to Jesus. Here, Jesus says that when we show solidarity, when we're not ashamed to be seen in public with helping, coming alongside another Christians, even the smallest one, even a little child, God notices and God will reward. We will have a reward. So, the inference is clear. We might be rejected by our family for being a Christian. We might be misunderstood. We might be dishonoured. But fear not, says Jesus. You have been placed into my family. Pray that your family will follow you. Pray that they too will be placed into the family of God. A family where there is true unity and love and purpose and affirmation. Here is the most challenging uh, call to discipleship. Jesus is saying that following him requires all our energy, all our passion. He is to be our number one priority, our great commitment. And in striking at the thing that is often regarded as a sacred cow, 
the family, Jesus makes the challenge most radical. Even family cannot come ahead of him. You cannot follow me, Jesus says, in a disinterested way. You cannot treat me as though I were a hobby. You cannot simply uh, turn up when it pleases you and, and think that in some way you're a follower of mine. Come, live, die, Jesus summons us. It's a word that we need to hear. Because we we live in in a culture which is allergic to commitment. We need to ask ourselves, am I really following Jesus? Is he really number one? How about you? Is that true of you this morning? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Does he come before everything else? Are you willing to follow him wherever he goes? Because only that kind of allegiance is Christian commitment. And only that kind of commitment will speak to the world around us. May the Lord enable us to give an allegiance to the Lord Jesus, which is decisive and true and courageous. Amen. May he bless to us his word.